I greet you this morning in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. It's good to see those gathered in the Faith and Arts Center along with those who are online. Two quick calendar reminders. Next Sunday leads into the 4th of July week. We'll have one combined worship service, 10 o'clock in the sanctuary. You're welcome to come at 9, sit in here in prayer, but the worship service will be at 10. Uh, Second reminder is six months from today is Christmas. You are welcome. (laughs) Our summer worship series is I Believe, and we're exploring the tenets of the Christian faith contained in the Apostles' Creed. This morning, we are exploring our belief in the Holy Spirit. Our scripture lesson comes from several different passages in the Gospel according to John, beginning with chapter 14, verse 15. As you're able, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of the Gospel. Jesus is speaking when he said, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Then in verse 25, All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Then in chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone their sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Amen. And would you please be seated. Over the past weeks, we have learned that the word creed comes from the Latin credo and literally means, I believe. Creeds are a distillation of our faith, a concise statement of what we believe. And we've seen creeds in both the Old and New Testament and that the church created different creeds with various content and emphasis over the centuries. The creed was created in a Trinitarian form of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and most likely came out of the church's worship together. The baptismal candidates were asked three questions. Do you believe in God the Father? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Over the past weeks, we have looked at our belief in God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son, This morning we come to the Holy Spirit. When you read the Gospels, you discover that Jesus appeared to his disciples for 40 days following the resurrection. And at the end of that time, he gathered them together and told them to go back to Jerusalem and wait. And he told them that God's power would come upon them so that they might be the Lord's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, 
and the ends of the earth. And then Jesus ascended back into heaven. The disciples were obedient to his command. They went back to Jerusalem, to the upper room where they had shared the Last Supper, and they engaged in creative waiting. They worshiped in the temple. They enjoyed fellowship with one another. They spent time in personal devotion and prayer. Ten days passed, and the day of Pentecost dawned. This was a Jewish feast that both celebrated the law as well as the agricultural harvest, in some ways a little bit analogous to an American holiday of Thanksgiving. And Jews from around the world crowded into the city of David to celebrate. At 9 o'clock in the morning, Jesus fulfilled the divine promise. The Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples. It looked like tongues of flame resting upon their heads. And the wind turbulence of the Spirit blew through their lives and turned them upside down so that they were right side up. And it was a moment of metamorphosis that the upper room served as a cocoon, not a place of warmth and safety, but of heat and of danger. And these ordinary men became extraordinary disciples. The same ones who had betrayed, denied, and deserted their lords became turbos of faith. These people who had argued over their status in God's kingdom and who was the greatest became the core of the New Testament church. Fishermen, tax collectors, and rebels prepared to storm the gates of hell themselves. And as a pastor... Part of what intrigues me is what the disciples did not do at Pentecost. They did not sit and enjoy the mountaintop experience. They did not say, we've got such a great group, let's don't let anybody else in. They did not form a committee in order to replicate the Pentecost experience for the future church. Instead, they burst out of that room and to the streets beyond. And with fire-flushed faces began to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And an amazing, marvelous, miracle moment of evangelism and communication took place. Every person, regardless of where they had come from, what country they abided in, heard the gospel proclaimed in their own language. And on that one day alone... 3,000 people joined the church. Read Acts chapter 2 when you go home today for a photograph of what the New Testament church looked like. And the chapter concludes by, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The festival of Pentecost celebrates God's gift to the church of the Holy Spirit. But I find in Bible studies and in other small groups that Christians, even who have been in the church for decades, wrestle with the question of what is the Holy Spirit? And the answer in part comes by reframing that question to ask, who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is not a what, it is the who, the personhood of God dwelling in our lives. That when you read the New Testament, it can interchangeably use Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus Christ, Spirit of God. And in its essence, 
The Holy Spirit is God's presence in your heart and in mine. This was not an invention of the church. And it was problematic for that first group of disciples because we have seen over the past weeks the original disciples were good Jewish men and women. That at the heart of the Jewish faith is the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. They believed in radical monotheism. One God is what separated Judaism from almost the entire world. But then they experienced Jesus in his earthly ministry. And there was this growing realization that Jesus was not only the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed promised one of God, but in some mysterious way he was God's son present in the world. God made flesh. The word come into our world. And then on Pentecost, they experienced the Holy Spirit as that same reassuring, comforting, and empowering presence that they had experienced with Jesus. Here clearly the disciples did not sit down at a table in the upper room and go, hey, let's invent the doctrine of the Trinity. That'll keep the church busy for the next 2,000 years. It was their experience and for the past 2,000 years, theologians have tried to explain it. And there's a lot of similes and metaphors and analogies, and none of them work very well. At best, they give a little bitty glimpse into what the Trinity truly means. There's a relational model. I'm one person, but to my parents, I was their son. To my wife, I'm her spouse. To my children, I am their father. There's the physics model of water. It's one substance, but it can be gas, it can be liquid, it can be solid. St. Patrick famously used the shamrock. It's one plant. It's got three leaves. There's an apple or any sort of fruit uh, that has a core. It's got the skin, it's got the fruit, it's got the core. There's an egg, has a shell, has a white, has a yolk, but it's one unity. My personal favorite is the Neapolitan ice cream model. It has vanilla, it has chocolate, it has strawberry, it's all crammed into one gallon. And all of those, when you reduce them down at some point, become a little silly because you're trying to describe the indescribable. And what theologians ultimately say is a mystery. See, theologians love mystery. Scientists hate it. But we're trying to describe God, the person, the presence of the Lord in our lives. Something else I've shared with some of y'all over the past is that when I've taught confirmation classes and disciple Bible studies in the past, when we come to the Holy Spirit, one of the questions I always like to throw at the group is, what pronoun do you use for the Holy Spirit? Is it it? He? She? And what I've learned in almost every group, the majority will kind of lean towards it. But remember the question is not what is the Holy Spirit, who is the Holy Spirit? It's not an it, it's not the impersonal force of Star Wars theology. It is God's presence in our life. Most often the, the New Testament uses the pronoun he. We heard in our scripture lessons today from the gospel according to John. If you travel back into the Old Testament, especially in the wisdom literature and Proverbs, then the Holy Spirit is portrayed as a prophetess. 
as a she standing on the corner calling out to people to come and experience God. The Holy Spirit is the person of God in our lives. But here the next part, because the person of God is always accompanied by the power of God. That when the Holy Spirit is present, God's power is present. I don't instruct you very often in Hebrew and Greek, but the one lesson I've given over and again is that in Hebrew, the word for spirit is ruach. And in Greek, it is pneuma. And what's always intriguing to me is they mean spirit. They mean wind, like Reverend Sarah was talking with the children about. They also mean breath. And you have that scene in John chapter 20 where Jesus breathes on the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And receiving the breath, the presence of God, also means they receive the power. The word power in the New Testament is also interesting. It's the word dunamis, which means dynamo, dynamic, dynamite. God's Spirit's person always comes with power, but sometimes we have the form of godliness without that power. Just prior to World War II, Pasadena was hosting its annual Rose Bowl parade, and one of the floats that was entered was by the Standard Oil Company. Beautiful float. They had decorated it in American Beauty roses. It got halfway down the route, and then it stalled out. And mechanics rushed out because it was delaying the rest of the parade. And what they ultimately discovered was it had run out of gas. It represented the Standard Oil Company. Limitless power in the form of petroleum, but on a national stage, their float ran out of gas. I feel that way sometimes in my spiritual journey. I'm sure you do as well. We have this power that's promised to us, but we don't always take advantage of it. We don't always claim it in our lives. It's a power that comes in a variety of forms. It's a power of new birth. There's that famous interaction Jesus had with Nicodemus, and he came to the moment where he said, you must be born again. But implicit in that statement is the promise we can be born again. And we constantly need fresh starts and new beginnings and getting a foothold to get back up and to regain our feet and start the journey anew. And maybe you're at a point where you need a new thing in your life. It is the power of what in the Scripture is called sanctification, of being made holy as God is holy. John Wesley believed that the Lord had raised up the people called Methodists to spread scriptural holiness throughout the land. It means taking that next step in discipleship of becoming more the people that God has created us to be. It's the power of a tutor. Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to send you the counselor, the Holy Spirit, and he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Have you ever had the experience of reading the Bible and not understanding what it says? And it's certainly important to be in small groups where we can learn from one another and from scholars, but we also have a personal private tutor. And how I comfort people who struggle with scriptures, don't worry about what you don't understand. Worry about what you do, and then do it. And then God will give you the next lesson when you need it. It's the power of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
Galatians 5 talks about, here clearly, singular, fruit, not fruits, because what happens is when you abide in God's Spirit, all these attributes begin to grow in your life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control become evident. And that's missing in our lives is because we're not spending enough time in relationship with God. There's the power of spiritual gifts that we're all gifted in different ways for the common good. And when we use those gifts, we're living, living in the sweet spot of life where God wants us to be. And if you don't know what your spiritual gift or gifts are, then there are ways that we can help instruments and talk to family and friends. They will help you discern that as well. There's a gift of unity, that when we have one spirit, we are bound together by one Lord and one God. There is a power of prayer. Jesus said, seek and you'll find. Knock, the door will be open. Ask and it shall be given. And yet there are also those convicting words in James chapter 4, you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you have the wrong motives that you might spend it on your own pleasures. What do you need God's power, God's person in your life? We celebrate the festival of Pentecost as the birthday of the church. It was when the Holy Spirit descended and the disciples were transformed into the body of Jesus Christ. Dr. Diana Eck was a church historian at Harvard and did a lot of study and discovered that in the medieval church, Pentecost was a high holy festival. And that especially the church in the 10th century Rome really knew how to throw its own birthday party. They had those magnificent cathedrals with the soaring ceilings that had paintings of biblical scenes and of saints. And hidden, disguised in the paintings, were small trap doors. And on Pentecost, the servants were sent up on the roof. And at the appropriate moment, the holes were opened and doves were released to flutter over the congregation like the Holy Spirit. And the choir would break into this thrumming and they would begin to pound on the pews as well. And then the servants would take bushels of rose petals and dump them into the holes and they would flicker down upon the congregation like fire of the Holy Spirit. And the church called these openings Holy Spirit Holes. Dr. Eck wrote, Our churches desperately need those skyward openings to the wind rush of God. What do you need the Holy Spirit to do in your life? Where is the power that you are looking for and waiting for in your spiritual journey? It's an image I use over and again in my own life and as I speak with others, that we tend to be people who are resistant to change. We freeze into one position one set of attributes, one type of personality, and most of us resist change fiercely, but sometimes there are crisis moments in life. And in that crisis time, that frozen image of who we are falls and becomes liquid. And it's chaotic, and it's scary, but it's also a time of opportunity to flow into a new shape, a new person, and then life is as life is. We freeze into that new position until God does something else in our life. Do you need a fresh start? Do you need to be sanctified? There's something in your life you're struggling with to give over to God. 
Are you looking for your spiritual gifts? Do you need the fruit of the Spirit to become more evident in who you are? Do you seek unity within the life of the church? Do you want the power of prayer renewed in your Christian faith? We believe in God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son and in the Holy Spirit. And the same Spirit that stirred in the upper room on Pentecost Sunday is just as evident and apparent and present here today. So let us come to the Lord asking God to do something new and yet at the same time to do it again. Let us pray. Gracious God, we appear before you this day and ask in this time of prayer that your spirit would commune with our spirits and that your presence will be accompanied by your power. Meet each person where we are. Bring fresh starts and new beginnings. Make us wholly transformed to live as followers of Jesus Christ. Allow the Holy Spirit to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Draw us closer to one another. Help us to rediscover the power of prayer and those spiritual gifts that you have granted us. Open up a Holy Spirit hole in our lives, in our congregation, in your church. It's the name of Christ our Lord we make our prayer. Amen.